Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. It's also printed in your bulletin. Um, this scene takes place already. It's uh, in the middle of a, a dinner party that Jesus is a part of. Um, I don't know how well you remember your Plato, but um, it's kind of very similar to a symposium type of situation that Socrates would come to. Matter of fact, I think Luke purposely maybe does that. I can't know for sure. But uh, uh, certainly the death of Jesus, uh, Luke styles his narrative a bit influenced by the death of Socrates. So it's an interesting kind of parallel here. So they're in the middle of a dinner party. And the parable is something that Jesus uh, says after a series of back and forth uh, hostile questions, as well as he healed somebody in the middle of it. By the way, why is this bell here? I've never, I've wondered. Call people to dinner. This is part of, this is our fire safety program right there. <laughs> I've, I've been wondering about it. So I, I, all right, listen to the word of God. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of land, I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm gonna try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of this town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot then, while the others are still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for your word, even if it's a hard word. Open our minds and our hearts that we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
priorities. I want to share with you things that were not my mother's priorities. Fashion. Not, not one of her strengths. All right? she, was, she never quite got, up, got away from being that Tom girl from the hills of West Virginia. Organization. Not a strong suit of my mother. Um, creative and healthy cooking. Um, now, I will say, what she made was good. I, I still was thinking about... Uh, my parents lived about halfway between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and uh, a couple of my sons and my daughter-in-law, we went to see a Steelers game, and I left a couple of my boys and my daughter-in-law at my mom's house as I drove my youngest son back to UVA. And about, you know, six hours later, I get this desperate text message from my daughter-in-law saying, please come quickly and get us. Your mother is feeding us to death. <laughs> And she was a nurse, so she had what I call nurse's disease. Some of you may know what that is. She wasn't really great about taking care of herself, right? But things that were her priority, her flower gardens were just absolutely beautiful, particularly she loved collecting wildflowers and putting them in her garden. Her patients, she was an amazing nurse and loved her patients dearly and took care of them. And her family, her grandkids, her kids, my dad, and her parents. When her parents were sick, I particularly remember my, my grandmother, her mother had uh, dementia uh, as well, tragically. That's what my mom had. And my mom was a psychiatric nurse and a restoration center. So it was very physical. They were elderly folks who had psychiatric issues as well. So she worked a hard, you know, 45 hour week but when they had to put my mom in a, uh, in a memory care unit, my mom volunteered on the weekends to be with her. So she not only worked herself, but she made sure she was there when, when grandma no longer could be in her house. Setting one's priorities, right? It's kind of part of what it means to be an adult, right? Or it's part of what it means to just figure out how we are to live our lives well. It's the chief ordering principle of life, right? Deciding what's important. You know, annual meetings are kind of a reflection of our institutional priorities. You know, we do this calculus of necessity, of wants, and also resources. And I think it's, it's just, it's a, a thing we have to do. We don't always get to do what we want, right? But we have a building, we have things we have to do, and, and that's nothing unspiritual at all about taking care of it, right? But Jesus is doing a different kind of math in today's passage. Jesus is not giving a time management uh, or maximizing your potential seminar here. Uh, Jesus says some pretty tough things today about the cost of following him. Uh, and I wanna spend some time thinking about that. Um, I'm gonna do the passage in reverse. So he goes through this flourish of counting the cost. Um, particularly, he does this really harsh line about hating our family. Now, some members of our family, that's not so hard, right? That's a joke. Mostly a joke, right? Ring the bell. Ring the bell, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
it's okay. None of those relatives listen to my sermons anyway. Yeah. Right? Um, I always think it's also kind of humorous. People who talk about traditional family values, Christian family values, they seem to miss this passage. Right? He talks about renouncing possessions. He talks about renouncing your very life. Right? Now, I think it's important to, to see Jesus' rhetoric here. And again, it's important to see that it is rhetoric. Um, is a warning about deciding the importance of God in one's life. And then choosing to live accordingly. Now, there are a lot of things going on in this passage, and I don't presume to know all of them. But I think Jesus is saying you are more than your most important social roles. How society defines you. Yes, you are someone's child, and you may become someone's parent or partner, but those are all temporary relationships. Although being a parent pretty much seems like a life sentence to me, anyway. It's the best thing and the hardest thing, right? And yes, we are to manage our resources, make contributions to the community, build homes, take care of our needs, and even satisfy wants. But Jesus is saying here, you're more than your role in the tribe or the society. And you're certainly more than what you own or what you possess or what you accumulate. See, again, if anything in this world becomes your ultimate treasure, then it will have your heart and not God. And the end result of that is always disordered love. Kids is a great example of that. You make your kids your priority. But sometimes it's hard to let go of that, right? And if you do your job right as a parent, they leave, right? And they go out and do their own lives, right? And sometimes that's hard for people to let go of, right? Because we get so tied into that. And actually, that's part of it, I think, this idea of, I've said it again, Kids are great as kids. They're lousy gods. They really are. And anytime we love something more than God, that love becomes disordered, even if it's a good and noble thing. I know people who have ruined churches because they thought they loved their church the most instead of God. Jesus is calling us to be conscious of our priorities. There was a really interesting uh, editorial by David Brooks this week. Matter of fact, uh, Rabbi Michael Cohen came up to me and was talking to me about it uh, Friday. And uh, one of the well-established findings of social science research is that conservatives report to being happier than liberals. Although my experience, liberals have better parties. But anyway, that's just... uh, that's from, that's from years of denominational politics. I found that they go to the liberal parties. They tend to be better. Um, but part of that, and particularly, you know, we've seen a lot of really scary data about the mental health of our young people. And one of the things seems to be this catastrophizing mentality. Um, 
this culture of, of denunciation, right? The cancel culture. And, you know, one of the things he, he talks about, and I think Brooks has a good point here, is that the trouble with a lot of these trends is that it says you can't make a difference. And that one of the most important aspects of being happy, at least in a classic sense, is feeling that you have some agency. Right? At heart of some of these tens is that the world is, you know, we can't do anything about global warming. We cannot do anything about the trends of, of racism. We can't do anything about what's happening to our political system. And when you get into that sense of helplessness, that it's hard to have any kind of sense of happiness, right? It's, it's easy to be depressed about that. But agency, you have the power to make a difference, even if it's a small difference, right? We cannot end world hunger, but we're doing something about hunger in Bennington County. You can be a part of that, right? We can't make everyone's problems go away, but we are concretely helping people in a lot of different ways. And I hope that that only increases over the next years. What Jesus is saying here is you have agency. <laughs> You're under an imperial, oppressive ruling system. The Romans were really good at organization and oppression. They were really good at that. But Jesus is saying your, your soul is free. It's free to be given to God. Which brings us to the parable of the great banquet. You know, I, I love the excuses, right? Well, hey, I brought some land. You know, I, it's, I've got to be responsible. I've got to go check my investments. Got to try out my oxen. <laughs> got to get my oxen out there on the open road and see how well they can go, right? I got to do this, right? I bought this thing. I got to make sure it works. And well, I just got married and you know, the honeymoon doesn't last forever, <laughs> you know? So I got to take care of that, right? God's invitation is not one of many things you have to arrange in your life. It's the only thing of ultimate worth. Kierkegaard, and I've used this quote frequently, anything you can lose will not bring you ultimate happiness. Guess what you can lose? Right? Everything, right? And it doesn't mean that the joys that we have, right? I mean, we have to cherish the people in our lives. The ability to do certain work, what we can build, but none of that lasts. And this invitation to the banquet of God, it's not a fundraising event, right? <laughs> it's not one of those sports awards banquets that go on forever. We've all been to those with kids, right? It's an invitation to grace. It's the invitation to the banquet of God's love. These are severe words here, right? They're to wake us up, but <laughs> we're being invited to love itself. 
I've shared this story before, and it's a powerful one that's stuck with me for, you know, ever since seminary. I had a friend who was doing his clinical pastoral education and following this uh, grumpy old Episcopal, Episcopalian surgeon around, or doctor, okay? And uh, there was, I came up to a young man who was, who was dying of AIDS, and he was miserable, and he was angry, and he was complaining, and you know, the doctor was doing his job. And then finally, the doctor looked at him and said, young man, as close as you are to death, I think I would be getting my life right with the God who loves you, instead of complaining. And my, you know, my, my friend who was, you know, we're, you know that's, that's everything wrong with that guy just did, right? You know, I was, I, I was offended and I didn't know what to do because I'm a student. And, because I can't confront the past or the doctor, and I'm thinking, oh, this is awful. This guy's awful. Two weeks later, they went back and visited that man, and he was at peace. And the doctor said, well, it's not my job, but I think this clergy in training should pray with us and thank God for the gifts he's given us. The tough message there was the message of love that helped set him free. And I think that's the idea, that we're invited to this banquet. Again, religion, church work, all this stuff can, can sometimes get in the way or be a distraction from the one thing, right? Now, this is a gift. Don't get me wrong. It's a gift that we have this resource. But this is not the thing. This building's not the thing. This budget is not the thing. Whatever you're concerned about is not necessarily the thing, right? The thing is the gift of God's love and mercy, his banquet table that he invites you to that makes all the difference. And in this banquet is a foretaste and symbol of that ultimate banquet of grace and love that we will celebrate forever together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. I invite you to stand as we say together what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to continue your worship by giving to God your gifts, your tithes, and your offerings.